Hello, Parole Podcast listeners. Hope you're doing well. And I hope this episode will cheer you up. Or, I don't know, make you cry. I think it'll be both. Why am I saying this? This episode is full of hope, but lots of things to take in. Let me give you the context. I, Alexandra, was born in Burundi and brought up there. And the vast, vast majority of my life was spent in a violent political environment. Some days I realized that I may have been blessed to be there. And sometimes I wonder what it would have been like if I were born in New Zealand, for example. I'm taking New Zealand for the landscape and the fact that it's so far away. It is through conversations that I get to see that there must have been a divine purpose because I don't know what I have become if I were born in South Africa during apartheid. This is the story of Barateng. She's from South Africa. She's been through a lot, as you will hear. And good Lord, what a woman. Not gonna lie. After this conversation, I was so grateful for Burundi. I was reminded of a conversation that I had with a fellow Burundian, Steffi, on episode 6, of how the black South African experience is, uh, for lack of a better word, tough to understand for us, especially me, Burundian, but I guess for all Africans. Not all, but like Southern Africa. They do understand. Not to be one to spoil the story. Let me share that this interview was planned to be part of the African Tech Women in Tech. Now it's on my podcast. You're welcome. As I stated in the last episode, it is difficult to produce content on a weekly basis. These types of conversations give me strength to keep on going. Barateng is the CEO of Girl Hype, Women Who Code. I guess this is self-explanatory. If you happen to live in Cape Town, go and visit her. I'm saying this as if she is available 24-7. Coding and women in STEM are topics that are being introduced to the public and for the listeners who might not grasp the importance of technology in the future, i.e. now, especially in Africa, I hope this episode will open your eyes. No matter your age and academic background, coding is a language that can be learned like any other language. This is my podcast, so I'll push this. Listener, if you happen to work at a tech company and want to collaborate with the podcast, i.e podcast to offer introductory classes get in touch i'll be happy to help and for those who might be scared of these buzzwords blockchain web3 crypto cloud metaverse or ai remember the time when we were scared to pay with contactless cards let's take a moment to laugh about it obviously as a producer of african tech roundup i will invite you to listen to our unajua series 15-minute series that will help grasp the state of African tech. Power Podcast is on all the major podcast platforms. Who knows? Soon up web free. I just need to figure out how to move there. Power Podcast via Boy Studios is also on Patreon. If you want to support my podcast, find the link on the show notes. Until next time. Madame Baratanga, who is in South Africa, it's sunny out there. It's not where I am in Europe. How are you doing today? I'm fine. I'm fine. And yourself? Yeah, doing good. Doing good. And ready to tackle the the questions of women in tech and uh, to share your, your experience, your yeah, your background. And before I get into the nitty gritty of what we're talking about, I have to explain to the listeners that I'm from Burundi. And I, I'm in my 30s and I haven't been through a lot of my life in terms of discrimination, other than gender discrimination sometimes. But in Burundi, we didn't have to go through some of the horrible things that passes. 
I, I then had to live with my great grandmother. Obviously, she has to make money. So my dad, I, I've, I've never known him, my, my real dad, my biological one. I think when I was one, my great, my grandmother took me from my great grandmother and lived with me because I grew up thinking my grandparents are my parents because they moved from Tlaxstop to another town called Madiko, which is like 1000 and something kilometers away from Tlaxstop. So South Africa is a bit big to do that. So they moved there and when they moved there, I lived as the only child because my uncles, everyone was in Tlaxstop or either in boarding school. So I thought I'm the only child and I thought my grandparents were my parents because I called them mama and papa and life was cozy for me. So I was very sheltered. When I say sheltered, I mean, I had two people who loved me with everything they had, everything. I went to a preschool, according to my aunt, when, who taught me how to read and write, I asked her, she said to me, I went to preschool in Tlaxstop. So we would visit Tlaxstop every now and then because my parents had cars. No, they weren't struggling. My grandparents weren't struggling. I think in our community, we're the only family with a car. What happened was we, my grandparents would go up and down between Tlaxstop and my Fikeng because my grandfather came from my Fikeng. When I was eight, my mother came to visit. I didn't know who she was otherwise. And <laughs> because it, it was very difficult for people to travel. The, the, tra the transport system was horrendous. It was horrible. I think I was eight when I met this person. And my, when my mother came, she brought something special. She had these beautiful dresses. I looked like an angel going to church that Christmas. She came for Christmas uh, holidays. I have two brothers. So my mother had three kids before she went into a marriage. So I had two brothers. My two brothers were growing up with somewhere in Mafiking with my grandparents' family. So as, as this person who grew up thinking I'm the only child, I always knew that I have two brothers because they would talk about them, but I had never met them. And I will see them, but I had no... I, had the, I think I had the biological bond with them, but I wasn't, I wasn't living with them. So when they came to live with us, I was so happy that finally there's many other people in the house. My, my aunt used to come for school holidays. So it was me and her who were very bonded. My brother says to me, we, we go to church, we come back from church. And my mom couldn't, didn't buy anything for these other two. Uh, but my brother says to me, you look amazing. You look so beautiful. And I said, yeah, <laughs> it's Tina. We call my mom Tina. Tina bought the clothes for me. And she says, no, that's your mom. And I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> like... When I get information that shocks me, and I think for an eight-year-old, I, I didn't know how to translate that. I, I listened to him, but it went into my brain and I ne it never left, but I never did anything with it. We, so we moved on with life because I saw this person who loved me so much. Like I could feel the love. You know, when you feel this vibration of love and excitement of seeing you, but she couldn't say I'm your mother because obviously when, apparently when she got married, they told her husband that I'm the only child or whatever, something happened there. Uh, but, and the, the agreement was I'll stay with my grandparents. So I stayed with my grandparents. So that was not something they had to talk about. Why is that important? It's important because I think I received so much love. I grew up alone with all the attention I needed and everybody who came into my life really loved me. And so I learned how to read and write when I was four, five, six. 
because I used to go to Tlexop when I'm in Tlexop, I'll attend preschool and I'll come back home. And my ma- my grandmother used to be a volunteer teacher, so she would make my life very easy. When I got in 1976, there was South African riots, the biggest school riots South Africa had ever seen. And I was six at the time. Educational riots, they went on and on and on. And young South Africans were dying very badly. My grandparents make a decision that they're going to, the following year when I'm supposed to go to school, everybody gets registered in school. They don't register me because they're scared of what's going to happen to me. I'm the only baby they have and they love me so much. But they don't register me. They decide to start telling people that I'm five. Okay, I was already six and I needed to go to school, but they tell people I'm five. I think it was fear, but I've always been a brave child. So what I did was I I saw my friends going to school and I questioned it like in my brain, like, you know, I wasn't asking anybody. I would ask myself, why are they going to school and I'm not? So when uh, time arrived, I think after a month, I followed my brother to school. I woke up very early morning, wore my Sunday clothes when nobody was seeing me. I sneaked out and followed my brother straight to school, went to right in the front line in the assembly. When the assembly was finished, the school principal, it's a, it's, Madiko is a small community, so the school principal knew my mom, because she, my grandmother, because she used to volunteer. So she came and said, Barata, what are you doing here? Majabani is going to, Majabani meaning my grandmother, is going to be very angry with me. And I said, no, but I have to be school. And she said, no, 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 you're still young. And I said, no, I can read, I can write. I can even show you. So I, I picked up a slate. We used to write in slates and a chalk and I wrote my name. I started counting for her and she said, you seem very confident and you seem to know what you're doing. And so that's how I went to school. And I, she, I went back home with my brother because she said to, my, to me, your brother must take you back home. You're going to come. I'm 100% sure you're going to come back to school tomorrow. So my brother took me home and I remember him buying me a quarter with archa and we enjoyed ourselves. For him, it was like, yeah, I'm out of school, I can do whatever I want. And we were playing the whole day and then we went back home to tell my grandmother that tomorrow I'm going to school. She immediately took my brother's pants because my dick was far from towns. Like the South African transport structural system is a very funny one. So you, for her, to, if she had to go to town, even if she was driving, it was going to take her the whole day or it was going to be a whole two days exercise if she was using buses. So she had to take my brother's pants, tear it apart and make a skirt for me. And made it smaller. That's how, that was my first uniform to go to school. And I was so proud because I was more clever than anyone in that class. I knew how to read, I knew how to write. I could use some basic calculations that they couldn't do. I think that would set the foundation of the person I would because I know when I need that strength. I know when I need the power to stand up for myself. I know that feeling because I can still remember that feeling of standing in front of the school principal and say, I can read and I can write. A six-year-old who's doing so. Yeah, um, because I grew up in a country that was very volatile and my parents were always worried about me. When I got to 10, my mother decided I want my child. So I, they moved me to Jan Camp. And when, when I moved to Jan Camp, coming from a family that had a car, we had everything I could dream of. I was the, the queen of the township, of that township. I then went into a space of 
we had but we didn't have and such a poverty driven rural area in Chankem because that's where my mother lived such a poverty stricken area and I couldn't relate the two coming from such love and finding this other 13 children I counted us almost every day there's other 13 children and I'm not the center of attention so I went to school and I, I really excelled in school because it was the place of sanity for me. I had to learn how to do chores, cook, prepare meals for adults, for family at the age of 10. And around five, clean, do everything because everybody was always at work. Jan Kemp really made me sad. <laughs> so I then became a sad child. And as a sad child, I needed an escape. Because I couldn't even mix with the other kids because my Tswana was different from the children in my communities. So my Tswana was different from the other kids in my township. So they would laugh at, at my language, how I speak. Them. And I think that made me very reserved. And I lost that. I didn't lose her, but I, I became too reserved. And I, I, in that reserve mode, I started reading a lot. So when I got to Jan Camp, my uncle worked for a newspaper company and every Wednesday, so he delivered newspapers every day, but on Wednesdays, it was magazines. And when he dropped magazines at stores, he would have to bring the van that he was driving to the house and he would clean it. And I used to help him clean the van. And when he cleaned the van, I would collect the magazines I wanted. And he picked up, I loved reading. So every time I pick up what I liked and I would keep it aside for myself, that would be my whole week of reading. And in the reading, I would cut out this imaginary people that I knew I want to be one day. It was my escape. I'm going to escape from this misery, poverty, because I had thought that maybe it's because my grandparents don't love me anymore. And I was always looking forward to, to them. And I never connected with my mom because obviously she was a domestic worker. I never connected with my mother. It was a sad situation because it took years for me to heal and understand it. When I left Majiku and I was taken to my, my, my mother, my aunt took me there. So she walked, she walked, she rocked up one day and said, hey, Baratang, I'm taking you to your mom. Now I've met this woman once in my life when my brother told me it's your mom. And now all of a sudden they're telling me you're going to your mom. I say, okay, we, we, we drive all the way to, it's long distances and I, I don't remember anything. Besides, we walk into this beautiful house I had ever seen. My brain can still remember it. We walked through huge courtyards. She worked for the British couple. Huge courtyards. The house is amazing. I think it was the first time I saw white people properly. So there's this white no way. thing. And the house is huge. So we go to the back. In the back, there's a, a small two-roomed house. And it's a kitchen. And that's where she lived. Now my brain loved what I just saw out there. And why should there be a small onion corner in the back? I, I got introduced to my parents and we laughed, had a fun because my mom was married. Now I have a stepdad who really loved me with all his heart. They introduced to myself. I have to get used to these two, but I, I, I'm not resistant kind of a person. So I, I'm, I'm gelling with them. But I think in the morning we, we slept, in the morning we woke up. So I'm now in an environment I don't know. And I wake up and I want to find her. So I am locked and I look through the, I peek through the window. And I'm trying to open the door. So I see my mom outside. She's holding, she's playing. She's having a ball of a lifetime with this child called Candice. 
as a maid, she had some child she had to look after. They're having the best time of their life and she's such a happy person. Now, you must understand, the last time I saw my mom, she was that person. And I'm seeing her outside and she's that person and I'm knocking and I'm waving the door to tell her that to come and open for me. And she gets a fright. But when she gets a fright, she comes inside and she screams, shout at me. Wow, 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 wow. I can't remember what she said. But I locked her. I never had a relationship with my mother after that. Even though I lived with her, I was always saying, I want to get out of this. I know this woman doesn't love me. Why should I live with her? And just that, just that incident. Because for me, she didn't explain that if the cops found me, they would have arrested me. She didn't tell me that it's a, it was fear that made her to react like that. And maybe shouting at me was her way of showing love really messed up my relationship with my mom. So because even when I lived with her in Jan Kemp, I was always looking forward to leave. When I was 16, I went back to live with my grandmother. And I found myself again and I got excited. I was in Clagstock, the best high school I could ever get into. And um, 1986, the riots were heavy, and but I pulled through a past. And yeah, I ended up at UCT. Are you writing a book? Are you are you preparing like different volumes, uh, different lives? Because this is I could go on. I I I have tried many times to write a book, but I I've gone through so many episodes of life that I think now I'm ready for a book. <laughs> my my, my son my son was was writing it for me because he 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 found my life story very fascinating. Some of the girls that I would be like, I want to be like you, Mamba. And he's like, no, 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 you don't want to be like her. You want to achieve <laughs> what she achieved, but you don't want her life. <laughs> wow. Because this is, that's, that's the thing as well. The, the, the beauty of just having conversations of people who went through different things, we're not comparing, you know, misery. But it is true that I, I'm one who read, you know, um, Trevor Noah's book and he's around my age. And you, you, you read what he's been for you, like, okay, I thought Nelson Mandela fought for something. We have this idea that it's, okay, Madiba did this and it's all good, but we don't know what happened before and really what made you who you are. Like, I'm talking about South Africa in, in general, with all the difficulties, like, really, something that I really still have a hard time grasping. When I, when I got to university, I did industrial psychology. The lecturer used to find it fascinating because he would lecture. Everybody would find that information, information. I found it a reality. Uh, because I went to university when I had already had kids. So I was 27 when I went there. I'm not going to tell you how, but it's another, also another drama. I'll take a lot of <laughs> that drama. So I already had kids and I had been through entrepreneurship, but... I got so fascinated when he talked about the mining industry, the NAMU strikes and what happened in 1987. For me, it was like, I lived it. I, I, I saw the reality of it because where in Tlaxdop, where we lived, we lived a street, our, um, a street away from the biggest church in the community called or the Roman Catholic church. It's, it's a huge, it's got a huge hall and huge. It's like one of the, true cathedral style. 
NAM, which is the mine union, they used to have their strikes because Klexop is a mining area. We're surrounded by mines everywhere. So the mining strike, when it happened, when they have their meetings, they would have it at the hall. And I would see, the, my uncle worked for the mines. I would see these guys marching into the communities. And they would have been in buses, mass, massive amounts of buses. So our street and streets around will be piled with the miners singing this name, Mandela. They, they could sing it out. And I didn't know who's the person. So I wasn't allowed to say Mandela at the house. <laughs> but they would sing it. They would sing all these powerful people's names. And they would call them to come and help. And to me, it meant nothing because I was very conscious of the strikes of 1986. When the country went into the state of emergency, we had police running around with guns everywhere. They were pointing at us like we were students and that's, that was our life. That was what we go through daily. Now, all of a sudden, 87, the NAM strike continues and the mining strike, one of the biggest ever in the country. It's happening in my eyes. So my uncle is part of it. So he would talk about it every day when he comes back from it. Now I'm at university and I have to study this. So I write the best essays they could ever find in my school. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm writing what I left daily. <laughs> and, and we knew it's for a cause and it's for a purpose and why we are fighting for the freedom of black people. So there was no fear in it. It's different. If somebody was to point out a gun at me now, I would be scared. But those days, if a cop pointed a gun at me, I would knew I would have been a hero because uh, we were so clear about where we want to be as black people. And I don't know what happened when Madiba came out, but I, I saw him in, in real life. The first, his address, his first address in stadium, 1985, I was there. So I, I could relate to what they are lecturing, what he was lecturing at university in terms of industrial sociology and psychology and the impact of it and why it turned white males being who they are today in South Africa because all the technical jobs were reserved for them in the mining industry and how that translated into the motor industry and translated into tech industry and why we live the way we live today because I knew the cause of how we, we fought to get to where we are. The sacrifices that people made losing jobs just died just to scream for me to speak English and speak to Alex today <laughs> for the release of Mandela, Robert Sobuku and what people I didn't know knew, but I knew that wherever they are sitting, it's because they want my freedom and I have to make sure that they access their freedom so that they come and continue the battle. So that was very clear for us. Talk about some uh, legacy there, because it's, I mean, I don't know how, how your children feel about this, for example. How do they feel about, okay, uh, Mandela, we know about him. Uh, yes, mom, she started this thing in tech and us, because at some point you, you're like, you're, we're ru either running out of superheroes or it's just so huge to, to you know, to manage that you're like, I, I don't know if I'm able to. My, my children are very conscious about what's happening in tech. They work in the tech space. They don't have the racism. They don't have the distinct of 
black and white that I have. I was taught by the system how we lived. Blacks lived by themselves, whites lived by themselves. I don't know where they mingled, but somewhere, somehow, blacks went to clean people's houses and did some garden work and work, went back to their communities and we left there and we were happy. And I was told that was wrong because we all needed good land, we needed that, that we needed So I think for me, it's very clear what is white and what is black. There's something that the government created and created the colors. And, and in between, there's other races. But for us as, as black people, we, we know what it is. We know what is black, we know what is white, especially my generation. Then my children are born in a free South, South Africa. And they went to, they got a very good education. I mean, I, one of the things I sacrificed for, it's their education. And I mean, I'm very poor, but their education was very good. So I, I gave them the best education that costed me a lot of money because to access what privileged white people access in South Africa, you must have money. Their challenge is not race. Their challenge is classism. They don't see a white as by virtue of being white, you have it all. Because they grew up very protected, and I protected them in terms of knowing they didn't grow up in a township. They lived in Cape Town and in the suburb areas of Cape Town. And 80% of the time, they were interacting with the real South African white people and everybody. The agenda of race, the way I would have it, when I look down the street, I see a colored person and I see poverty and I know what the system did to us. You have to work hard. We do understand black people have gone through things. We do understand the legacy that the system has caused. But if you work very hard, you will break some barriers. They said that we have a kick-ass mom who moved out of a shack and is now changing legacies. We need to, they need to realize, they say, if you put it out to the universe, you will be able to achieve. So they dream big. I always told my children that if you want to be successful, don't stay in South Africa. Come back to South Africa and rebuild South Africa. So they travel a lot. <laughs> and they, they always travel like for my children oh I'm, it's, it's my birthday oh which country am I going to go to it's, it's something that it's something that they have in them because I've always said all of South Africans I'm not talking black now I'm talking about all of us as South Africans that's the the wrong the damage brain damage that apartheid did we don't know how to relate to another color without biases and stereotypes and you, we don't know how to relate, relate to a person. Now, when you are someone and you come to South Africa, you get a hell of a shock because you think these people are crazy. Why is, does it bother them that I don't sound... Uh, you will be like, you'll get judged. You are Alex, you sound black. Why are you not speaking Kotsao Zulu? So now to get out of that mindset, you have to be outside South Africa. I think my kids are very fortunate because we're very deliberate to give them that kind of education and raise them as global citizens because it was very important for me to say, I don't want them to go through what I went through when I was at UCT. I don't want them to go through that non-humanitarian. You know, I want to eat and them to interact with people as humans. That That's, I mean, it's crazy because at the same time, it feels like you're talking about a time that was like, I don't know, in the middle ages, separation, division, this and this and that. 
you're talking about a time where a family of yours had a car, right? You're like, okay, huge. So I'll include, I don't know, a TV, a satellite TV, and this and this and that. And then you go into tech. Let's be clear. Nobody, not everyone has like a 5G connection. Not everyone is has, I don't know, DSTV at home. You know, to get to see what's happening in Silicon Valley, to get to see what's happening in South Korea, in China. And then, like, I don't know, 18 years ago, in all three, you decided to start your hype. What happened in your life and what happened in your spirit to be like, let me jump into this. I'm going to do this. Before we go into this, explain what what is Girl Hype. Girl Hype is a organization, a non-profit company. We teach women and girls how to code. And we do that through tech clubs. We form tech clubs in schools. We form... Uh, the Women come to the house we've got a, a center where they come and they learn how to code and we find them jobs uh, we place them in tech jobs we encourage girls to study computing because it's since it's 18 years now i've traveled all over the world and reached so many women we've reached more than 900,000 now next year we targeting just next year only with the campaigns that we've planned we are targeting at least Five hundred thousand across Africa or a million. So I have good partners that wants to come on board. So the mission is it's doable, and this is purely exposure with the million that we're talking about. We're hoping that at least two hundred in the end of the year will be fully fleshed tech proficient, like they can go and work in the tech space. How do you go and talk to someone who, who lives in a township and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you a computer. I'm going to explain what coding is because it sounds so AI, it sounds so out there, 50, uh, 18 years ago. I didn't ask for permission. I just did it. <laughs> you see, I... <laughs> <laughs> no, I the, the the universe didn't ask me for permission. It just did it. And nobody had a plan for me to be in tech. The universe was like, which is you? And you are going to do it. Kicking and screaming, I ended up being in it for 18 years. And 18 years I've been kicking and screaming. I can't leave it. And and you know what happened? It was the first time I touched a computer when I got to UCT, firstly. At university, I was an old woman, a mother, and there was this extra classes I had received, the horrible designed education, specifically for black people to, to be domestic workers. And I beat the system because that with the same kind of education, I ended up at UCT. I then experienced that that was not education because now UCT expects me to, to perform. So the first six months of university, I failed everything. But I passed one course. And that was my savior. <laughs> so I'm here for six months, first semester. I cried out to faculty and I said, no, I didn't come here to fail. <laughs> I came here to pass. Now imagine I've grown up thinking I'm so clever. <laughs> and I'm so intelligent. And all of a sudden, I fail everything. So I cried all my tears out in, in the faculty. And I said to <laughs> It's making me cry now. And I said to this lady, look, 
not me. <laughs> Other people can fail, but not me. So she said to me, look, I know what the challenge is. The challenge is the courses that you are doing. And I said, oh, what? what? What's wrong with my courses? And she said, we're going to cancel economics, finance. So she says to me, look, Bara, you're going to do industrial psychology, but you'll do it in there. This is how I'm going to structure your courses. You're going to do industrial psychology. That's the only course I had passed. And you're going to do sociology. And you're going to do, I don't know what he, she puts there. She puts up two courses. I'll have to look up in my transcript. <laughs> so she did accounting. And she said, these things, if you continue with them, at the rate, you are going to fail. And I said, okay, that's okay. We agreed. But you must understand what she stripped out of me. Now I can't go back to my friends and I can't say, oh, we're going to the same class. Now I'm stripped all the ego and everything from the university. So I have like a little soul. So I went and I did extra meds classes because that's what she said. She said, you're going to do extra meds classes in the meds department. So what the university had is they had extra meds classes for people who didn't study meds so that they can pass their finance course, their meds, the courses that they have to do to qualify for certain degree. Because you study finance, you assume it's not mathematics technically, but it's a lot of mathematical, logical thinking ability. So they had those co that course. So she said to me, you're going to do this course. You're going to the English learning center. There's a learning center. You go to the English learning center there. When, after you write your essays, take them to Because I was like, and even these lecturers, they're very discriminated because I write my answers. I don't care. This is no worries. This is not going to happen again. You go to the writing center after you write your essays there. So what happens at the writing center? It's master students. Or they read what I wrote and they correct the English. And they sit with me and interview me and correct the English. So whatever I want to say, they say, no, but that's not what you said. And they, they would, na, 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 na. so they, well, by the time I submit my essay, it looks a bit better. Second semester, I'm like, bang, my courses are in by 60s now. I'm excelling, I'm happy. I now know the computer. Now I'm at, I'm a student, but I have to attend extra English class, extra maths class, extra computer class. And I was like, it's too much work. I also have my mother to two kids and I must work because obviously nobody's sending me money. So I was like, Man, this is misery. So I, I then decided, you know what, out of all the misery, I'm going to focus. So the following year, I joined the SRC and I became, you know what, I became so vibrant. We formed the women's movement. Hey, we, I was busy. In those, in that element, I'm learning of discrimination of women. And I also had learned, how do you tell a person to code? When I finished my metric, I applied to be a lawyer. So I went to, I applied to be in South Africa, you could be a prosecutor. So I went to the courts, I applied and I got accepted. But they didn't say you were accepted. Like, oh, they, they said you are fine. So there, there was a final, final round, the final round. You, when you become, when you join the prosecutor and you go through the South African courts to study as a prosecutor, you study law, you also wear gowns because you will accompany prosecutors to courts. So they had to do measurements of my gowns and everything. I finished metric and I, I had stayed a year and I had a baby. Now, I didn't have a baby at the time. I was pregnant, five months pregnant. My time was a little bit blocked. So when he put the gown on my on the measurements, he said, I asked me, are you pregnant? I said, yeah. And he said, 
It's, in fact, he was the first person I tell him I was pregnant because nobody knew I was pregnant except him. He asked me, are you pregnant? I said, yes. And he said, <laughs> now on the form, when you apply, it says you must not have children. You shouldn't have, be pregnant. You, it doesn't say you shouldn't be pregnant. It says you must not have children. So I say, but I don't have children because I didn't have children. And she, he says, no, but you are pregnant and you are going to have a child. So you, before the program starts, so you don't qualify for the program. And the man was so disappointed. It was an old man at the time. I mean, I was young. It was an old man in his 50 something. And he was so proud to see a black young girl who was so determined because I was the only one applying, so determined to apply. There was a lot of boys, my friends, who all ended up going. And can I tell you, one of my friends had a baby already with a girl in the township, but he didn't say that and he got in. I didn't get in. So the, the issue of gender had already been, and that's how I ended up staying in the township for six years. Because after that, I ended up starting a business now to support the baby. I went into interior designing and then, but the seed of going to university never left me. And a friend of mine kept on planting it back and I ended up going back again to university. So that space where I didn't have a child, where I didn't have anything in that six years, I lost even being that level girl. So I think I had to balance lots of things when I got to university. So I knew about gender discrimination, but I couldn't point it properly. Now, when I get to the township, I say to them, hey, you girl, one thing they're going to do is they're going to discriminate against you. And if you ask me how they did it to me, now the government is not going to ask you if you have a child. But if you go to university, somebody's going to have to watch your child. Do you think that person is going to love your child? Your child is not going to like you. That's my life. The child might not like you because you don't have a relationship with your own child. And, and you know, I, I tell them my story and I say to them, you know what happened to me? I went into a computer lab because I had a child and... These young boys were doing a research and they said someone and I saw code and I fell in love with it. And someone taught me how to, I started girl hype to teach girls how to use computer. And someone taught me how to code. And I knew this is what I need to teach girls. Like split second. The moment I learned how to code, I knew that's what I need to teach girls. For me, it was about bringing the voice of the girls on the internet and bringing the voice of a woman on the internet, especially a black woman, because there was nothing, nada, no one when I researched about anything that has to do with women on the internet when I started Girl Hype. There was no Facebook at, at the time. It was still being built. So yeah. Google was fresh. So when I Google, I was Googling one Linux something at the university, or Net something, Netscape. There was nothing, nada of women. So I then tell them my story. So 90% of the time, I go to a school. I tell the school my the girls my story. And I say, those who are interested, because I will go to assembly, tell them my story, how tech helped me. And I say, if you are interested and you want to change your life, because this industry changes people's lives, you come to me. In the beginning, it was very easy because the teachers didn't know how to use computers themselves. So when I say, hey, I'm coming to teach computers, they'll be like, start with me. So now it's it's easy. When people say empowerment, it means everything and nothing at the same time. We hear it in management classes and leadership courses. But in your case, it's something that should be tangible. And I believe it's tangible because we're, you're focusing on women and you're like, I know where I'm from and I know how you know, education helped me out. As Barateng, how would you define empowerment? I think empowerment is you are empowered enough to be included in 
the environment you work in, in you can make a decision. You are empowered enough to make viable economical decisions, to make decisions about your life, to make decisions about your future and to know the difference between right and wrong based on the legal rights we have as human beings. I'm, I'm going to say universal rights. I don't want to use rights based on, because they can be very discriminatory. But rights, as, as a human being, I have a right to a good education. If you are empowered enough, if you are empowered, you will get a very good education. That will give you the right to get a good job. That will give you the right to get a payment job, a paying job. So for me, empowerment is an internal thing. It's not... It's not a, an ex, if, I, if you say I'm empowering people, you need to do it both ways, internally and externally. So when I'll use as, as an example about myself, when my leg, when the faculty said, but are we going to change your courses? They did not strip away what I wanted. I wanted to be a qualified industrial psychologist. So I ended up with a degree in industrial psychologist. What did they do? They empowered me with extra meds classes going to the writing center, giving me the power to enhance what I already have. It did not undermine me and saying, oh, no, 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 you can't be in this university with these marks. That is, that is what I call empowerment. And I, I find that people come into our spaces, especially black people, and they say, we are empowering you. No, you don't come into our space and make us sound like you, look like you, walk like you, and then you are saying you're empowering us. That is not empowerment. <laughs> yeah. such a, so the savior complex. Yep. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's not empowerment. So you have to create an environment that is going to make my life easy. I always say in South Africa, white people are very empowered. And that's what we would call privilege in other countries. But in South Africa, it's not a privilege matter. It's a privilege plus empowerment because they have easy access to transport, the structural system. They have easy access to good housing, easy access to good education. So because they have everything good around them, they have a choice. They are so empowered to have a choice to say, I can only study up to a certain point. I can only do this. I don't want to do this. I can go, go there. I cannot do that. You know, we, whilst black people don't have a choice, they are all scrummed in townships with horrible transport system, horrible education system that was never changed. And, and you expect them to perform. And even if somebody was to go there and teach the girls just mathematics, it's not enough empowerment because they still go back home to hunger problems BBV in the home it's 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 none it's too much if you look back and, and you compare to you know where you've been through obviously you've traveled as you said what do you see in the women in tech in south africa in africa and in the world are you hopeful do you think so many things can be done should have been done or are you like i would have never imagined this happening in less than 20 years African women are very, they're women in tech now. They're very resilient. And we're going to do it, whether they like it or they don't. Um, and we're here to stay. 
we have a community of very strong women who know each other and are supporting each other. And we deliberate now. In the past, it used to be a silo thing. But now we're very deliberate of how we work together, how we collaborate, and how do we make each other successful. And I'm, I'm happy that we're clear about that as African women. I'm just worried about the Europeans and the European women who come to Africa to empower African women. And those are the threats. They come in a package. They, they're either tall, skinny, white. Beautiful, 80% of them. And 90, 100% that I've seen. Gosh, I'm, so, I'm trying to look for them in my brain and I can't see any of them. All of them are tall, skinny, white. <laughs> and those European women are a threat because European men support them. The power, the dynamics of the VC world is that you, you bet on the horse and the emotions of the horse. If I'm standing here and a European woman who claims to be empowering African woman, who is really meeting all the criteria and the states of empowerment, they start a coding school in Africa. Their coding school is successful. Mine is standing there unsuccessful because the VCs will invest in that person. We're going through the same thing. There's no government money. There's no people. The, the students can't afford and none, 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 none. But what they are bringing with them is a VC who trusts them. They could have failed, not know anything about business, where they come from. Trust me, half of them have failed. Businesses, they don't know nothing about business. They get here, they are nurtured. They get all these European men around them making sure this business is going to be successful no matter what. So I, I feel that's our threat. And it's not a threat. Eh? For me, I say it's not a threat. African men and our African governments need to step up, step up and support African-owned business, women-owned businesses. And I'm not talking about a chance. I'm talking about someone who's dedicated and doing the right thing and they know their business and there's lots of them. This is, if somebody takes anything out of what I say today, it's the diaspora. I'm talking about women of our own diaspora, not being afraid to come to Africa. Guys, we're not going to eat you alive, eh, Alex? Come back to Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> we are human also. <laughs> and do the same thing for us because it, it, it sometimes feels like it, it's, a, it's a battle, it's a, alone. But those who've made it, I know in my circle, when the door opens, open it for the other one. So I have hope. I belong to Tech Woman. And Tech Woman is a, is a US state-owned department program. And they take women from Africa, Middle East, Africa, Middle East, and somewhere. <laughs> so the Russian countries. And yeah, they, they, um, they, it's called Tech Woman because it's for the emerging leaders. And you go to the States and you spend six weeks with very powerful women. I've, I've never met powerful women like that in one space. Like at my time, there was 340-something mentors. I went to Adobe and my mentor was from Adobe. So you spend time with the executive who exposed you to executive leadership and they spend time teaching you how to be an executive leader. Uh, Alex. I'm not joking you. I was with Girl Hype 2003. I started Girl Hype. 2015, 12 years later, I was nominated for Tech Woman. When I got to Silicon Valley, I did not know the power that I had for the work I had done in Africa. 
because I always, always was put in a corner of my misery of being a black person. And I always looked at myself from that corner of a victimhood of, I cannot be that because it was so unachievable for me as a black South African. Even though there were women who were doing it, there were a few South African women who do it. They, they, I always thought they had something I didn't have. And I went to Tekuma. <laughs> I came back and they saw smoke. I was like, fire. Like, wow. I was on fire. Because they broke that victimhood, that it's unachievable, that you can't do it. I, I realized it's doable. You can do it. And that's why I believe in mentorship. But it depends on who's mentoring you. So the, the tech woman is not, even though it's it's happening in the U.S., it's not designed with a U.S. mentality. It's designed with a empower another woman, build a structure, a support, a strong support structure. So when I make a decision, I can call. And I mean, I, I just won the Lenfidir campaign now and I, I won the challenge. You know, during building my portfolio for winning the challenge, I called some of my friends from Silicon Valley. Hey, is your company willing to partner with me when I start this teaching South Africans how to code or Africans how to code in their mother tongue? Yes, we are willing. I have that network that can hold my back of people that I could never access being a black South African. But you know, the U.S. State Department took it upon themselves to select all these women in Africa and other outside. And if you look at all the women from tech women, we are the ones now charging coding Africa around and we can't, we're bringing it back. So I say, <laughs> the reason I'm telling you is to say, when you empower a woman, you empower a village. When I started being more powerful, the village around me became powerful. I like the fact that you talked about the, the victim mentality is that most of the time we're like, oh, but I can't do it, I can't do it. And then we expect when someone else is doing it, you know, as, as a Burundian, I'll say, my goodness, coding? Uh, yes, in South Africa, of course, because it's a rich country. Of course, in Nigeria. Of course, in Egypt. You know, you have all the reasons in the world, but something can be done. Do you feel like this, this the way we see ourselves, I guess, the way the world see, you know, wants to portray us as women, as being weak, as being... Vulnerable. I, I don't like the word minority. Yeah. As being vulnerable. As yeah, and you're like... It's, it's, it, it gets imprinted in us. That's why my daughters are not the vulnerable people in my house. My son. <laughs> my daughters are not vulnerable. My son is, they know. My daughter's same home. I said, no, 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 no. Sort it out. You banged yourself there. Stand up and pick yourself up. My son banged himself. Oh, cry, my baby. It's so good to cry. <laughs> No, but I mean, it's, it's it's important in women that we are vulnerable, we are weak. And, and now when it comes across, because we have natural tears, because we have empathy, compassion, it comes with us. It's one of the things we are born with and now it gets accelerated when women start giving birth. Now it's easier women can control not having children until their 30s or 40s. But then, I mean, around that, it's quicker. In their 20s, you start having children or some teenage pregnancy. is very hard. So because it's in prayer, once a woman gives birth, then it, it, it gets accelerated to always care about what's happening next, what, when is the other person going to eat. So that nurturing character of ours 
is misunderstood and we also live with this fear it's not a fear as such but okay let me put it in a, in a positive way i always say to the girls look i'm not going to tell you anything but i'm going to tell you there's nothing wrong with being a very powerful strong woman in the room and if you feel the moment you do that and you feel like <gasps> because we do feel it when you've said a powerful statement and everybody says you go do what the moment you feel that oh my gosh i want to go into my shell again of no i'm not good stop it tell yourself ah, 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 it's out like when people say baratang you so you're so good you're so powerful i say yes i'm powerful thank you very much yeah you're so good yes i'm good i i am willing to internalize it i don't say it out but i internalize it because if i don't say it i will never know it find the most powerful men in the world put them in their same room and you listen to how they talk how powerful they are how ego we say they are egotistical but it's 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 accepting and embracing who they are the power in within themselves and women don't like doing that so for me it's we need to accept it we need to know our role we can play it better i always say i know if almost every woman in the ecosystem that is doing what i do when they start doing it i i try to reach out and say wow what a powerful thing you are doing and let's do it because we need lots of us let's do it show that i'm not going to be your competitor and i'm not going to stand on your feet even those women that come from europe you know i'm their friends i go speak at their event and i do everything because one thing they are doing is they are empowering women and we need lots of them there's nothing wrong with them it's the vcs it's the what that are overlooking women that is wrong the platform that needs to be arrested addressed i nearly said arrested <laughs> it speaks to what you have in, heart, in your heart <laughs> It's, it's, um, it's the it's the VCs, it's the funders, the biases that exist in their market because that woman comes with her good intention and whatever she's doing is a very good thing. So we need lots of people, women empowered and men, empowered men, because now we are suffering. Unempowered men are very aggressive. But it's funny because South Africa is known, I mean, if we take the, the economic part uh, on the side, uh, violence against women, for example, it's it's something that it's out there known and everything. How do you feel like technology, like helping those girls, you know, bring out the best in you know hackathons or whatever? I do believe that sports plays the the same role as well to mm, kind of yes. help get out of the you know the shell and kind of teach leadership skills as well. How to, is technology really is bringing the best out of these? situations if you have a story for example because i can only imagine if you if you're a 15 year old girl you live in a township and your stepdad or your mom is they're having troubles and and they're asking you to to perform at school and you don't have free meals a day and you know all this situation where you're like how am i going to do how am i no there's no way i'm about to make it in three years you know and graduate high school we create safe spaces for girls and i think the fun of tech is that you can teach anything so we teach them lots of other empowered things like public speaking um logical thinking ability it's so much fun it's like they build apps they they compete we give them prizes now you ask the valid question you know many people have asked me i i start working at 10 it's a very 
as a principle. So I do everything. I clean, I meditate. My life is so ch- it's very early. Like I wake up very early, I meditate and I do all these things. But I like sometimes half past three, I'm already awake. I'm going to meditate at four and I listen to my spiritual classes and I, I do all these things and I do all that before nine. And at 10 o'clock, the girl hype classes start. It has never started any time before that. And that rule came when I used to work in Kailicha. On weekends, we would we would have tech schools, tech day in schools. So we'll go teach the girls. But on weekends, we'll go into a big hall. We had a big, and there's lots of computers, and the girls will come and learn how to go. The late comers. Now that we have volunteers that teach, the volunteers will be so angry with them. Why are you late? You're always late. But these girls, instead of answering, they would cry or they would do anything. Now, I mean, my life hasn't been the easy part. So I, I had the softer side of a struggling person. So I called, I would call these girls aside. Why are you late? Uh, I have to clean first before I come. Why are you late? I had to take my brother to crash before I come. Why are you late? My father didn't want me to leave before I finished washing the, the, dishes, the dishes. My mom is going to, okay, I realized. And then I, I said, okay, that's cool, but they can't do half past eight. Let's make it nine. And I said to the girls, to, okay, next week, Sunday, we're changing the classes to nine o'clock. Everybody here, everybody must be here nine o'clock. Because what was happening was half past eight was half the girls were late because of transport. They had to take lots of different modes of transport to get to the center. And then it's, it's a nightmare. And I said, I pushed it to nine to cover up the ones of my dad, my, my sister said, my what was said. And I said, okay, let's do nine. Then I realized nine o'clock, 45% of the girls arrive early. This is 15% of girls that arrives late. And I'll ask them, why are you late? Oh, my boyfriend beat me yesterday. Your boyfriend, and you are only 17. Uh, why are you late? Oh, I, I, we have a baby at home and I have to watch the baby. So I was looking for someone. My aunt has to come and I have to take my child. And I realized, okay, these are big issues. These are now bigger than me. And things that the girls would tell me, I can never repeat them. The, because they will, the, those girls will know. I promise them, don't. I will never, ever, ever, ever tell your stories. So I said, Girl Hype is a safe space. Whether you like technology or you don't like technology, we're going to remove that element of you need to know mathematics, you need to do what. And I then find out the 45% that was always early, the breakfast was amazing at Girl Hype. Eh? Mm-hmm. No, I don't have a breakfast anymore. And the, food is, and the food is like amazing. I cater, when I cater at Girl Hype, you'll think we're at a conference. So I, then, then because wow. food is amazing, the girls would talk about food. And I realized these are girls who come from schools that doesn't have food. And they will tell me when schools are closed, we miss girl high because there was no food. We miss girl high because I, so I, I had to, to take all this into consideration. And I said to myself, okay, the only thing we'll do now is 10 o'clock. Anyone who's not there at 10 o'clock, I'm going to go see their parents. And anyone who didn't rock up at 10 o'clock, I picked, I walked in my car and I drove and I said, you don't, you don't, I'll take you to court. This child is saying they're coming to extra class and you are. So I used to, <laughs> I used to be crazy. Man. <laughs> and these parents knew. I said, they washed the dishes. They did everything they had to do. You're not going to stop them to, to get education. And if you do that, then you are literally, it's in the constitution. I know that constitution. I will read it out to you. And most of the parents used to think I'm this powerful social worker or whatever I am. 
So it's it's a safe space for for women and girls. And what tech does is it gives them something that no other career can give you. Tech says it's just like straightforward. You know it or you don't. You know, a, there's a girl called Koliswa. She was studying Java. We, we, we taught, we teach Java for six months and they were doing Java in school. The, the high school teaches Java and they had in South African school, there were schools that were teaching Java. Now they've changed it. And they were teaching, learning Java in school and all these girls were failing. The boys were scrambling. Then I took all the girls from the school who were studying Java and I brought them into Girl Hype and we were teaching them Girl Hype. I mean, I, I teach very basic, like I would, um, how, how, how do you initiate? I'll, I'll, I'll explain that concept in different forms. How, and, and, and they understand it and they go back to school. And these girls were now beginning to be up and running, like the top performers of the class. Uh, one of them WhatsApp me in the middle of the night in 2015, Koliswa. Mom, are boys allowed at girl hype? And I said, yeah, why? And, and they are. I've never, I've never kicked the boy out. Uh, there's so many boys who've gone through girl hype. I don't talk about them. I've never kicked them out. And I don't say anything. But they are. And I've mentored so many boys, I've mentored so many men, but I don't talk about them. So I said, no, yeah, but wh- why are you asking? And she says, oh, there's a boy who wants to come. They were asking if you can start boy hub. And I said, no, just tell him to come. So this boy arrives and he rocks up with his five friends. And they sit in the same class. And I asked him like maybe three months into it, I said to him, are you getting what you wanted? And he said to me, more than I could have ever asked for. All those five boys, they always write on my LinkedIn successful software developers you ask them how they made it they like that mama it's like it's a safe space and what it does it gives them this strong leadership because when you speak tech if i were to sit can you speak code if you enter a room with software devs and they start speaking their lingo tech has its own lingo and there's processes you follow like if you're going to follow the scrum master principles those um, stand up five minutes and do what and do it. So if you are in a meeting with software devs and they start doing their lingo, you will feel very intimidated. Now, what, the girl, what we teach the girls is those things. They, we do the scrum principles, the what, what. And we teach them like grade eight or grade 10. They're doing design methods. They, so when they go into the university, they speak in this business language already and they're far advanced than the reality of the real world. Because we teach them what is innovation. And now they, they build these apps using design thinking methodology. Technovation has built this curriculum in Silicon Valley is our partner. And they send it to us where it's continually up on the same standards as the universities in the Stanford and what. So they we, we, we use a highly advanced curriculum and they've trained our facilitators, one of our facilitators are master educators. She went to Silicon Valley and led. So we trained them these principles. And now when somebody, one of the startup founders came to, the person who trained startup founders came to our course. And I said to him, come in and speak to our girls and do some volunteering. All right, he came and he thought, oh, I'm going to be speaking to uh, 16, 17 year olds. I have to think about what to speak about. So, and I also didn't think of it because I thought every, it's normal. To be fair, honest, I've thought what I'm doing is normal. So we got, he gets there and he's like, he starts speaking about asking them questions and the girls are answering it and they are bored. 
because we fa- we passed the basics that he wanted to talk about. And then I decided, you know what? I can see my, my girls are very bored. So I said to him, Neil, um, uh, it would be better if you do, if you just skip that part because these girls know what is design thinking methodology. These girls know what is innovation. They they know, I mean, my girls now are discussing coded biases. They, they talk internet governance because I will, it's things I will bring into their brains. So I said, so Neil, I think you, you better step it up. He then realized that I have to talk to them like I would talk to anybody. And I said, I brought him to talk about investment because we need women who are very empowered and we need to stop this thing of thinking because she's 16 years old. We need to teach her this. We can't teach her this. She qualifies for this. The same criteria they use. She's black. We're not going to give her this. We'll give her this. Those biases, we need to stop them. That, that's funny because let's remember that Facebook was founded by a 19-year-old, a 19-year-old. kid. Aha. That's... And he, he got his first investment at 19. So why not a South African person? He was 12 when he built his first game and he sold it. So we, we still, by the time he built Facebook, he had done a lot. And we, we forget all, all those things. So for me, it's, tech gives, it's, it's got these principles and it's, it runs business. Because businesses all want to be like in the tech space. And because whether we like it or not, tech has taken over processes if we, you teach the girls how to think like that speak like that they might not be the best in the room but they can fit in the room they can be included in the room because when somebody when people are laughing they know why they are laughing they can make a coding joke um, um it's, it's, they, they can be part of the room because being a software dev is, it, you know, let's be realistic, not everybody's going to be a computer scientist, but Which the is, fact yeah, that okay. they can fit in the tech world and decide to be devs, not programmers. Programmers are like people who come from computer science and what, what but they mm-hmm. can be devs. You can say to them, build me a, a website and they will build it. You can say to them, build me an app and they will build it. It doesn't mean they came up with the fantastic algorithm the world has ever seen. But we are hoping that one day that person will come from Africa <laughs> and they're the best algorithm the world has ever seen. And we are hoping it will be a black woman. That is, yes. Hopefully yes. from Burundi. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> you need to come to South Africa, you know, Alex. It's the most beautiful. Please. Forget about the nonsense that we talk about. It's not nonsense. Yeah. The legacies that we talk about and everything. When you are in South Africa, I feel like you are in Holland, my sister. <laughs> we will we'll hide the the other parts. <laughs> the other way, yeah. I'll be, I'll be. Like, huh, really. I'm in San Francisco. There's, there's, ocean, there's a mountain. There's everything. So, that's, that's true. I need to do that. But it's true. It is true that South Africa is really challenging us as Africans. So I need to travel in different countries and uh, and, and see what's going on. But let me ask you the last question because I'm thinking, okay, Girl Hub cannot stay in South Africa. Come on, come on, Barateng. You know, you should you should venture in different countries. If you were to do so, what will be two or three countries that you would love to to partner with and start seeing, you know, different things and changing the country ecosystem, I guess? I think Namibia. Okay. Because 
Namibia is very isolated and it's very close to South Africa. So they have a lot of history there. And we, we're not really talking about what the black people in Namibia are going through. The whole diaspora, when I say that, the whole globe. We have this thing of thinking a black African is struggling when they are in Africa. The world has evolved. Africans are everywhere. And poverty is beginning to be a human thing element. It's it's not now. I think in the next coming 10, 20 years, poverty will be a human element. It, it might not have to do with race. And that's something that is being brought by tech because tech is an equalizer. Tech is going to erase. It's going to skills and, and are going to fast get fast-tracked. And people, especially black people and people who've been marginalized, are going to easily get in there and build their own platforms and, and get better. If we get good internet and no, even if you don't get good internet by virtue of black people being all over and i now I've, I've really thought about it and we've implemented it we're busy building our platform hopefully it launches properly um, end of december or january we it's ready we just doing debugging there and there we're gonna open it to all girls who want to learn how to code from anywhere in the world i was in palo alto i know palo alto where Mark, yes. where Mark Zuckerberg lives. Yes. <laughs> There's a dangerous strip zone of poverty in Palo Alto, of poor people where rich people like him can't even walk. I went to give a talk at Perseverance High School in Silicon Valley because the teachers invited me. The school has the highest technology I've ever seen in the world. It's donated by Apple, Mac, Microsoft, what they, 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 like sports technology. If you're into sports, go there and study sports technology. It's a high school. The kids there are in that school because their parents cannot afford anything, including food. This is black inclusive now. There are black that looks like your Beyonce black. So it's not like my black or the Trevor Noah black. So now we, I think I thought about this and I said, there's those people all over the world. There's a woman, there's a young girl out there who's suffering exactly what I'm suffering, sitting in Palo Alto, going through the same poverty, the same no love, the same. So Atlanta, Fanina, is my second city and it's in the U.S., because the mayor of Atlanta came to South Africa and he asked me if I can go start Girl Hype. And he was here 2017. Uh, okay. Yeah. He asked me if I can go start Girl Hype in Atlanta because he said, what you're doing in Africa is amazing. Can you come and start here in the U.S.? And I said, at the time I was not ready, but now we are ready. The world is ready. That was four years ago. Yeah, but now the world is ready to see a powerful black woman speaking about tech and teaching other tech. At the time, I, I felt like they're not ready yet. Wow. But I think when you open the the, 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 the office there, I'll be there. I have friends in Atlanta. I have a friend in Atlanta. I'll join you there. So it's not even thinking, you know, the neighboring country, you know, the easy peasy. Oh, let me start there slowly, slowly. Lots of people thinking they'll save Africa. It's, it's fine. They're living their problems wherever they are and they come hoping they're saving Africa. But it's, it's not saving wow. Africa. I think it's something else. So for me, it's we have a good, good, I think I should just build a database. We have a very good women across Africa doing what I'm doing. How we, What we're not doing is reaching out enough. We're not collaborating enough and we're not building one big massive platform that can take over the whole of Africa. If I have any country I would think of, I, I see a face of a woman doing what I'm doing. So there is lots of 
Baratangs, especially the past five years, there has been lots of women saying, hey, we need to be in tech. We need to be in tech. We need to empower other women. The only thing that's missing, it's a plug point. Oh, it's there, but it's, I don't know what I call it. Maybe we've never sat down and said, let's write one big business proposal and say, hey, let's cover the whole of Africa. So for me, I've, I know we have very powerful women doing what I'm doing, but I want to open one where I can reach girls anywhere in the world and online. What is next for you? I'm speaking at as a high panel member at the Internet Governance Forum UN and the IGF in Poland in December, Katowice. I've orchestrated the speaking, this that I'll be doing. Since 2017, I went to Brazil and I studied internet governance law. And I started speaking on platforms about it and I started building the profile. 2019, I was speaking in the small rooms. Now, 2021, this high panel leader, it means you influence the world because you speak in front of world lead at UN, the internet governance of internet governance. And you have a voice because I'll be speaking about innovation and inclusiveness. So if you ask me what's next for me, I hope they accept me at Oxford. <laughs> I want to go study at Oxford Institute and study innovation and inclusion. And how do executive leaders really think about inclusiveness? And what, what do they think of when, how do they go about the process of being inclusive in meetings and, and how, how do we get tech? Because when you build tools, that's what people don't understand, what people always confuse. When you build, build a tool, you can't make a tool inclusive if you're not thinking about inclusive. But if you're thinking about inclusive, the tool might never work because you, you're so caught up in the algorithm as a developer. And how do leaders at that executive level, like Mark Zuckerberg, I don't think he really cared about because he was building a tool, a platform that can connect and network people. And now that platform has built itself to be the most discriminating injustice and being used by other people because he's, it's not what he was building, but other people are using it. And you know what they are using? Organic algorithm of Facebook was who's the most beautiful looking girl on campus. That was the algorithm. Now that algorithm will go into Instagram, will go into Twitter, will go into what women are being pulled down by tech. But we don't see that. But how do tech developers not realize that whatever the platform that I'm building is bringing in injustice to the world is still baffling my head. But I, I know why, because I, I've, I've said with developers, we get so excited when the algorithm works. <laughs> it takes what? You read the code, it's a millions and millions of lines of code. And, and to get that, it's, it's fascinating. Now, I want to get into that fascinating stage and ask them, when do we think of inclusiveness? So many things to do then, because, good Lord, Facebook is not having a great time these days. So uh, hopefully they'll be able to change some of the things. But yeah, thanks thanks a lot. And I can't wait to, to see your office in Namibia. I haven't been there as well, so why not? We never hear about Namibia, honestly. It's like a small country doing their own thing. And, and we don't know really what's happening in Namibia. 
We don't, honestly. Like, uh, it's so small. I mean, not small, but like really. But it is it is true that changing the world really starts in a township in in South Africa. Thank Who you. knew? That is a great. So thanks a lot and uh, good luck with the rest.